Section 13 of The Countess of Lowndes Square and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Devorah Allen. The Countess of Lowndes Square and Other Stories by E. F. Benson. Cat Stories, Chapter 2. There Arose a King. Agag, though of undoubtedly royal blood, was never a real king. He was no more than one of the Hiskos, a shepherd king, bound by the limitations of his race, and no partaker in its magnificence. Naturally, he did not work, as the late housekeeper had done, and no one expected that of him. But he had neither the splendor nor the vivacity possessed, let us say, by Henry the Eighth or George the Fourth to make up for his indolence in affairs of state. Henry the Eighth, anyhow, busied himself in marriages, whereas Agag was merely terrified at the idea of wooing, not to say winning, any of the princesses that were brought to his notice, and they, on their part, only made the rudest faces at him. Again, George the Fourth, though unkingly in many respects, used to plunge about in the wild pursuit of pleasure, and was supposed to have a kind heart. Agag, on the contrary, never plunged. A cushion and some fish and plenty of repose were the sum of his desires, and as for a kind heart, he never had a heart at all. An unkind heart would have given him some semblance of personality, but there was not the faintest room to suppose that any emotion, other than the desire for food and sleep and warmth, came within measurable distance of him. He died in his sleep, probably of apoplexy, after a large meal, and beautiful in death as in life, was buried and forgotten. I have never known a cat so completely devoid of character, and I sometimes wonder whether he was a real cat at all, and not some sort of inflated dormouse in cat's clothing. There followed a republican regime in this matter of cats. We went back, after Agag, to working cats, who would sit at mouse holes for hours together, pounce and devour, and clean themselves and sleep. But among them all there was no character which ever so faintly resembled even Martha, far less Puss-Cat. I suppose the royalty of Agag, stupid and dull though he was, had infected me with a certain snobbishness as regards cats, and secretly, given that there were to be no more of those splendid plebeians like Puss-Cat, I longed for somebody who combined royal descent, for the sake of beauty and pride, with character, good or bad. Nero, or Heliogabalus, or Queen Elizabeth, or even the Emperor William II of Germany would have done, but I didn't want George I on the one side, or a mere mild president of a small republic on the other. Just after Agag's death, I had moved up to London, and for a time there was this succession of unnoticeable heads of the state. They were born, those presidents of my republic, from respectable, hard-working families, and never gave themselves out, though they knew quite well that they were the heads of the state, to be anything else but what they were, good, hard-working cats, with, of course, not only a casting, but a determining vote on all questions that concerned them or anybody else. We were democratic in those days, and I am afraid freedom broadened slowly down from president to president. We were loyal, law-abiding citizens under their rule, but when our president was sitting at the top of the area steps, taking the air after his morning's work, it used to be no shock to me to see him tickled on the top of his head by people like tradesmen coming for orders, or a policeman, or a nursery maid. The president, in these circumstances, would arch a back, make poker of a tail, and purr. Being at leisure and unoccupied with cares of state, he did not pretend to be anything but bourgeois. 
the bourgeoisie had access to him. He would play with them, without any sense of inequality, through the area railings. There was a nursery maid, I remember, whom our last president was very much attached to. He used to make the most terrific onslaughts at her shoelaces. But now all that regime is past. We are royalist again to the core, and Cyrus, of undoubtedly royal descent, is on the throne. The revolution was accomplished in the most pacific manner conceivable. A friend, on my birthday two years ago, brought a small wicker basket, and the moment it was opened, the country, which for a month or two had been in a state of darkest anarchy, without president or any ruler, was a civilized state again, with an acknowledged king. There was no war, nothing sanguinary occurred, only by virtue of the glory of our king we became a great power again. Cyrus had arranged that his pedigree should come with him. This was much bigger than Cyrus, and being written on parchment, with a large gold crown painted at the head of it, was far more robust than he whose ancestors it enumerated. For his majesty, as he peered over the side of the royal cradle, did not seem robust at all. He put two little weak paws on the edge of his basket, and tried to look like a lion, but he had no spirit to get farther. Then he wrinkled up his august face, and gave a sneeze so prodigious that he tumbled out of the basket altogether, and by accident, or at the most by catarrh, set foot in the dominions where he still reigns. Of course, I was not quite so stupid as not to recognize a royal landing, though made in so unconventional a manner. It was only as if George the Fourth, in one of his numerous landings on some pier, so fitly commemorated by the insertion of a large brass boot-print, had fallen flat on his face instead, and was commemorated by a full-length brass, with top-hat a little separate. Babies of the human species, it is true, are all like each other, and I would defy any professor of eugenics or of allied and abstruse schools of investigation to say, offhand, whether a particular baby, divorced from his surroundings, is the Prince of Wales or Master Jones. But quite apart from his pedigree there was never any question at all about Cyrus. There was no single hair on his lean little body that was not of the true and royal blue, and his ears already were tufted inside with downy growth, and his poor little eyes, sadly screened by the moisture of his guitar, showed their yellow topaz irises that were never seen on Master Jones. So he tumbled upside down into his new kingdom, and recovering himself, sat up and blinked, and said, I took him up very reverently in both hands and put him on my knee. He made an awful face, like a Chinese grotesque instead of a Persian king, but anyhow it was an oriental face. Then he put a large paw in front of his diminutive nose and went fast asleep. It had been a most fatiguing sneeze. Royal Persian babies, as you perhaps know, must never, after they have said goodbye to their royal mamas, be given milk. When they are thirsty they must have water. When they are hungry they have little finely chopped up dishes of flesh and fish and fowl. As Cyrus slept, little chopped up things were hastily prepared for him, and when he woke his food and drink were waiting his royal pleasure. They seemed to please him a good deal, but at a crucial moment, when his mouth was quite full, he sneezed again. There was an explosion of awful violence, but the royal baby licked up the fragments. We knew at once that we had a tidy king to rule over us. Cyrus was two months old when he became king, and the next four months were spent in growing and eating and sneezing. His general manner of life was to eat largely and instantly fall asleep, and it was then, I think, that he grew. Eventually a sneeze plucked him from his slumber 
and this first alarm was a storm-cone, so to speak, that betokened the coming tornado. Once, after I began to count, he sneezed seventeen times. Then, when that was over, he sat quiet and recuperated. Then he jumped straight up in the air, purred loudly, and ate again. The meal was succeeded by more slumber, and the cycle of his day was complete. His first refreshment he took about seven in the morning, as soon as anybody was dressed, and an hour later, heavily slumbering, he was brought up to my room when I was called, buttoned up in my servant's coat, and placed on my bed. He at once guessed that there must be a pleasant warm cave underneath the bedclothes, and with stampings and purrings, penetrated into this abyss, curled himself against my side, and resumed his interrupted slumbers. After a while, I would feel an internal stirring begin in my bed, and usually manage to deposit the king on the floor before his first sneeze. His second breakfast, of course, had come upstairs with my hot water, and after the sneezing was over, he leaped into the air, espied and stalked some new and unfamiliar object, and did his duty with his victuals. He then looked round for a convenient resting place, choosing one, if possible, that resembled an ambush, the definition of which may be held to be a place with a small opening and spaciousness within. That gave us the second clue, tidiness being the first, towards the king's character. He had a tactical mind, and should make a good general. As soon as I observed this, I used to make an ambush for him among the sheets of the morning paper, providing it with a small spy-hole. If I scratched the paper in the vicinity of the spy-hole, a little silver-blue paw made wild dabs at the seat of the disturbance. Having thus frustrated any possible enemy, he went to sleep. But the ambush he liked best was a half-open drawer, such as he found one morning for himself. There among flannel shirts and vests he made himself exceedingly comfortable, pending attacks. But before he went to sleep, he made a point of putting out a small and awe-inspiring head to terrify any marauding bands who might be near. This precaution was usually successful, and he slept for the greater part of the morning. For six months he stuffed and sneezed and slept, and then one morning, like Lord Byron in the discovery of his fame, Cyrus woke and discovered the responsibilities of kingship. His sneezing fits suddenly ceased, and the Cyropidea, or education of Cyrus, began. He conducted his own education, of course, entirely by himself. He knew, by heredity, what a king had to learn, and proceeded to learn it. Hitherto, the pantry and my bedroom were the only territories of his dominion that he had any acquaintance with, and a royal progress was necessary. The dining-room did not long detain him, and presented few points of interest. But in a small room adjoining he found on the table a telephone, with a long green cord attached to the receiver. This had to be investigated, since his parents had not told him about telephones. But he soon grasped the principle of it, and attempted to get the earpiece off its hook no doubt with a view to issuing orders of some kind. It would not yield to gentle methods, and after crouching behind a book and wriggling his body a great deal, he determined to rush the silly thing. A wild leap in the air, and Cyrus and the green cord and the receiver were all mingled up together in hopeless confusion. He did not telephone again for weeks. The drawing-room was less dangerous. There was a bearskin on the floor, and Cyrus sat down in front of the head, prepared to receive homage. This, I suppose, was duly tendered, because he tapped it on the nose, as the king entering the city of London touches the sword presented by the Lord Mayor, and passed on to the piano. He did not care about the keyboard, but liked the pedals, and also caught sight of a reflection of himself in the black shining front of it. This was rather a shock, 
and entailed a few swift, fandango-like steps with forepaws waving wildly in the air. Horror! The silent image opposite did exactly the same thing. It was nearly as bad as the telephone. But the piano stood at an angle to the wall, offering a suitable ambush, and he scampered behind it. And there he found the great ambush of all, for the back cloth of the piano was torn, and he could get completely inside it. Tactically it was a perfect ambush, for it commanded the only route into the room from the door, but his delight in it was such that whenever he was ambushed there he could not resist putting his head out and glaring if anybody came near, thus giving the secret completely away. Or was it only indulgence towards our weak intellects that were so incapable of imagining that there was a king inside the piano? The exploration of the kitchen followed. The only point of interest was a fox-terrier at whom the king spat. But in the scullery there was a very extraordinary affair, namely, a brass tap, conveniently placed over a sink, half covered with a board. On the nozzle of this tap an occasional drop of water appeared, which at intervals fell off. Cyrus could not see what happened to it, but when next the drop gathered he put his paw to it and licked it off. After doing this for nearly an hour he came to the conclusion that it was the same water as he drank after his meals. The supply seemed constant, though exiguous. It might have to be seen to. After that he just looked in at the linen cupboard, and the door blew to while he was inside. He was not discovered till six hours later, and was inclined to be stiff about it. Next day the royal progress continued, and Cyrus discovered the garden, forty feet by twenty, but large enough for Mr. Lloyd George to have his eye on it, and demand a valuation of the mineral rights therein. But it was not large enough for Cyrus. I don't know what he expected, for after looking at it closely for a morning, he decided that he could run up the brick walls that bounded it. This was an infringement of his prerogative, for the king is bound to give notice to his ministers when he proposes to quit the country, and Cyrus had said nothing about it. Consequently, I ran out and pulled him quietly but firmly back by the tail, which was the only part of him that I could reach. He signified his disapproval in what is called the usual manner, and tried to bite me. Upon which I revolted, and drove the king indoors and bought some rabbit wire. This I fastened down along the top of the wall, so that it projected horizontally inwards. Then I let the king out again and sat down on the steps to see what would happen. Cyrus pretended that the walls were of no interest to him, and stalked a few dead leaves. But even a king is bounded, not only by rabbit wire, but by the limitations of cat nature, which compel him to attempt again what he has been thwarted over. So, after massacring a few leaves, already dead, he sprang up the wall, and naturally hid his nose against the rabbit wire, and was cast back from the frontier into his own dominions. Once again he tried and failed, appealed to an obdurate prime minister, and then sat down and devoted the whole power of his tactical mind to solving this baffling affair. And three days afterwards, I saw him again run up the wall, and instead of hitting his nose against the rabbit wire, he clung to it with his claws. It bent with his weight, and he got one claw on the upper side of it, then the other, wriggled round it, and stood triumphant with switching tail on the frontier. So in turn I had to sit and think. But short of building up the whole garden wall to an unscalable height, or erecting a chevaux de frise on the top of it, I had a barren brain. After all, foreign travel is an ineradicable instinct in cat nature, and I infinitely preferred that the king should travel among small back gardens than out of the area gate into the street. Perhaps, if he had full license, especially since I could not prevent him, to explore the hinterlands, he might leave the more dangerous coast alone. 
and then I thought of a plan which perhaps might recall my Ries Kaiser when on his travels. This I instantly proceeded to test. Now I had been told by my cabinet that the one noise which would pluck the king out of his deepest slumber and would bring him bouncing and ecstatic to the place where this sound came from was the use of the knife sharpener. This, it appeared, was the earliest piece of household ritual performed in the morning when Cyrus was hungriest, and the sound of the knife sharpener implied to him imminent food. I borrowed the knife sharpener and ran out into the garden. Cyrus was already four garden walls away and paid not the slightest attention to my calling him. So I vigorously began stropping the knife. The effect was instantaneous. He turned and fled along the walls that separated him from that beloved and welcome noise. He jumped down into his own dominion with erect and bushy tail, and I gave him three little oily fragments of sardine skin. And, up till now at any rate, that metallic chirruping of the sharpened knife has never failed. Often I have seen him a mere speck on some horizon roof, but there appears to be no incident or interest in the whole range of foreign travel that can compete with this herald of food. On the other hand, too, if Cyrus is not quite well, this very seldom happens, though he does not care for food, he does not either feel up to foreign travel, and therefore the knife sharpener may repose in its drawer. Indeed, there are advantages in having a greedy king that I had never suspected. As the months went on, and Cyrus grew larger and longer-haired, he gradually, as befitted a king who had come to rule over men, renounced all connection with other animals, especially cats. He used to lie perdu in a large flower-pot which he had overturned, ejecting the hydrangea with scuffles of backward-kicking hind legs, and watch for the appearance of his discarded race. If so much as an ear or a tail appeared on the frontier walls, he hurled himself his face a mask of fury at the intruder. The same ambush, I am sorry to say, served him as a butt for the destruction of sparrows. He did not kill them, but brought them indoors to the kitchen, and presented them, as a token of his prowess as a hunter, to the cook. Dogs, similarly, were not allowed, when he sat at the area gate. Once I saw, returning home from a few doors off, a brisk Irish terrier gamble down my area steps, Cyrus's area steps, I mean, and quickened my pace, fearing for Cyrus if he happened to be sitting there. He was sitting there, but I need not have been afraid, for before I had reached the house a prolonged and dismal yell rent the air, and an astonished Irish terrier shot up, as from a gun, through the area gate again with a wild and hunted expression. When I got there, I found Cyrus seated on the top step, calm and firm, delicately licking the end of his silvery paw. Once only, as far as I remember, was Cyrus ever routed by anything with four legs? But that was not a question of lack of physical courage, but a collapse of nerves in the presence of a sort of hobgoblin, something altogether uncanny and elfin. For a visitor had brought inside her muff an atrocious little griffin, and Cyrus had leaped onto this lady's knee and rather liked the muff. Then, from inside it, within an inch or two of Cyrus's face, there looked out a half-fledged little head of a new and nerve-shattering type. Cyrus stared for one moment at this dreadful apparition, and then bolted inside the piano ambush. The griffin thought this was the first maneuver in a game of play, so jumped down and sniffed round the entrance to the ambush. Panic-stricken scufflings and movements came from within. Then a diabolical thought struck me. Cyrus had never yet been in his ambush when the piano was played, and the griffin being stowed back again in the muff, for fear of accidents, 
I went very softly to the keys and played one loud chord. As the Irish terrier came out of the area gate, so came Cyrus out of his violated sanctuary. Cyrus was now just a year old. His kitten coat had been altogether discarded. He already weighed eleven pounds, and he was clad from nose to tail tip in his complete royal robes. His head was small, and looked even smaller framed in the magnificent ruff that curled outwards from below his chin. In color he was like a smoky shadow, with two great topaz lights gleaming in the van. The tips of his paws were silvery, as if wood ash smoldered whitely through the smoke. That year we enjoyed a summer of extraordinary heat, and Cyrus made the unique discovery about the refrigerator, a large tin box like a safe that stood in the scullery. The germ of the discovery, I am afraid, was a fluke, for he had snatched a steak of salmon from the tray which the fishmonger had most imprudently left on the area steps, and with an instinct for secrecy which this unusual treasure trove awoke in him, he bore it to the nearest dark place, which happened to be the refrigerator. Here he ate as much as it was wise to gobble at one sitting, and then, I must suppose, instead of going to sleep, he pondered. For days he had suffered from the excessive heat. His flower-pot ambush in the garden was unendurable, so also was his retreat under my bedclothes. But here was a far more agreeable temperature. This is all the reconstruction of motive that I can give, and it is but guesswork. But day after day, while the heat lasted, Cyrus sat opposite the refrigerator and bolted into it whenever he found opportunity. The heat also increased his somnolence, and one morning, when he came up to breakfast with me, he fell asleep on the sofa before I had time to cut off the little offering of kidney which I had meant to be my homage. When I put it quite close to his nose, he opened his mouth to receive it, but was again drowned in gulfs of sleep before he could masticate it, so it stuck out of the corner of his mouth like a cigarette. But eventually, I knew, he would wake and remember and understand. And now Cyrus is two years old, and has reigned a year and ten months. I think he has completed his own education, and certainly he has cleared his frontiers of cats, and, I am afraid, his dominion of sparrows. One misguided bird this year built in a small bush in his garden. A series of distressing, unfledged objects were presented to the cook. He has appropriated the chair I was accustomed to use in my sitting-room, and he has torn open the new backcloth that I had caused to be put on my piano. I dare say he was right about that, for there is no use in having an ambush if you cannot get into it. In other ways, too, I do not think he is strictly constitutional. But whenever I return to his kingdom after some absence, as soon as the door is open, Cyrus runs down the steps to meet me, even as Puscat used to do, and makes a poker of his tail and says, Ah! That makes up for a good deal of what appears to be tyranny. And only this morning he gave me a large spider, precious and wonderful, and still faintly stirring. End of section 13